Research and Culture with Dr. J, a podcast brought to you by Culturarium.com in affiliation with Quadil Books and Events. Welcome to Language and Culture with Dr. J. I am Dr. J. This episode is entitled Medicine in the U.S., an interview with Dr. Tom Franey. So, would you mind introducing yourself? Absolutely. I'm Dr. Tom Franey, and I'm a uh, general surgeon here in Kansas City, Missouri. I was born here in Kansas City, Missouri. Lived a short period of time in New York City, actually on Long Island growing up, but finished my high school career here in, in Kansas City, went on to medical school here in Kansas City, and then residency in New York, and then back to Kansas City. I've been in practice here for almost 30 years. I'm married, have a wife, have three children. My oldest, Claire, is 20, and she's a third-year pharmacy student in Creighton University in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. And then I have twins, boy-girl twins, that are 15. They're sophomores in high school, and they go to separate all-boy, all-girls high schools. We've lived here in Kansas City, the kids, all their life. My wife grew up on a farm. Her family still is living on the farm. My children spend time with their grandparents and cousins and things on the farm. Your, your uh, wife is a medical doctor as well. My wife is a physician as well. We actually uh, met when I was just starting in practice and she was a, uh, a resident and actually uh, uh, was spending a month uh, with my group learning some surgical uh, skills and things happened from there. And, uh, <laughs> the rest is history. The rest is history, <laughs> so to speak. Yes, yes. So where did you go? Where did you study? UMKC? Went to uh, college at uh, UMKC. UMKC has a fairly unique program for the United States. It's a combination six-year bachelor MD degree program where you start right out of high school. I was 17 years old when I started in medical school and uh, went for six years, obtained my bachelor's degree as well as my MD degree. Graduated from there in 1985 and then... um, Decided that I wanted to go into surgery, obtained a general surgery residency at North Shore University Hospital, Cornell University Medical Center in Manhasset, New York on Long Island, about 20 miles from Manhattan. Was there from 1985 to 1990 and came back to Kansas City, joined a general surgery practice with four other general surgeons. I was the fifth one in the group. We were what we call a private practice general surgery group. We, we were our own entity as far as generated our own income and paid ourselves and ran our business. And, and that's been a big change in medicine around here in the last five to 10 years. But um, I had uh, four original partners. They have all eventually um, retired, moved on, various other things. Had another merged with another practice with the remaining physicians, and then that eventually evolved into uh, those partners all left, and now I'm on to my third group of uh, of partners, and uh, basically practicing at uh, much the same, doing surgeries at much the same hospitals um, over that thirty years. Okay, um, so we're joined today by my husband, yes, Hendrik Unter. 
uh, because I wanted to make sure that I had someone from the German system helping me ask the appropriate questions and helping me compare the two systems. So, Hendrik, would you, mind, <laughs> would you mind introducing yourself as well? Yeah, um, my name is Dr. Hendrik Runter. I'm from Hamburg. I did a year in, in Bordeaux in France, then finished my, my university degree in, um, in Hamburg. And actually, I wanted to do internal medicine cardiology, but, you know, as fate did it, I uh, had to do some parts in, in any other subject. And for that, I chose anesthesiology and it, I liked it much better than expected and um, stayed there ever since, which has now been like almost 10 years. Yeah. So already just, just sort of backing up to mm -hmm. your studies. Tom Franey, you were saying that you went to a very special school or university or medical yes, school in the yes. United States because it was a six-year program. Yes. And there are only a handful of six-year medical programs in the States, Correct. whereas the it's the norm in Germany. It's, so. it's the norm. You have uh, five years of pure studies, and then you have one year which is more like a practical. Well, you still have lessons in that too, but where you are like really more on the wards and sort of mm -hmm. working along and in three different sort of parts. One has weak surgery, one is internal medicine, and the third one is one of your choice. And then afterwards, you um, have another oral exam. And um, if you pass that, then you have your medical degree. I mean, there's not mm -hmm. differentiation between bachelor or mm -hmm. sort of it's just the yeah, medical yeah. degree that you get. Whereas the doctor title isn't obtained with it automatically, mm -hmm. they have to do some kind of research. I mean, mm -hmm. there can be small research, so it's a little bit more probably like a PhD. In, in right. So, so this is already, um, it's always difficult to translate one system to the other. So, so in Germany, if I may, if, if I can, if, if it's, it's it's for me as well. I mean, I studied, I went to, mm -hmm. I, I did a human biology degree mm -hmm. and I completed all my pre-med requirements mm -hmm. um, at KU. Well, the the traditional, we talked about the differences, the traditional American system is, is that you go to and you do what we call an undergraduate degree. You get your bachelor's in arts or bachelor's in science or some undergraduate degree in whatever subject you want, French, engineering, physics, biology, whatever you want to study, whatever you want to do. Traditionally, that's four years of your undergraduate degree. And then kind of in that last year, if you are planning on going into or applying, then you apply to medical schools. And typically there's a kind of a medical school entrance exam called the MCAT, M-C-A-T. And based on how you do in your undergraduate training, based on how you do on your MCATs, um, and then you apply to medical schools. And there are actually a couple of different types of medical schools. There's uh, the more traditional, which is the MD or the medical doctor degree. And that's been the more older established type of uh, medical uh, training. Uh, but there are other ones. There's the doctor, the DO or the doctor of osteopathy, which is like medical school, but they also include some osteopathic medicine, which is uh, manipulation of the spine and a little other kind of alternative type of medicines. Now, the DO school, the doctor of osteopathic school, has not been generally accepted or embraced. It is much more difficult in the past 
to then get a traditional residency, which is the next step after medical school. But it is becoming more and more accepted and more common. So that's another avenue to get into medicine. And then kind of the third avenue is is that people will go to um, these foreign medical schools that have ties to the United States. A lot of those are in Caribbean schools on Caribbean islands and things. Well, you'll go for That's a a nice way to go to medical school. Not bad, not bad. Um, Where you go and you um, do a lot of your your book work, you know, classroom-type medical training in the islands at a college or university. But then a lot of your last two years, um, when you're doing your clinical rotations, come to the United States and, and do your medicine, your pediatrics, your OB, your surgery, whatever other clinical rotations you need to complete your degree. And then you get your degree from that foreign medical school. What do they do differently? Okay. It's... Do you know what I mean? It's like a little sort of... easier to get into. Okay. 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 Usually, it's students that haven't been successful in getting into an MD program or in a DO program, but they still are very committed to becoming a doctor. You know, maybe they didn't do well in the MCATs, but they're, you know, very bright, very motivated. And this is another way, you know, as you go along, it's harder to then advance your training down the road because the DO and the foreign medical graduate degrees are a little bit harder to get into, mainly some of the the premier premium residency programs. Um, And it's called a foreign medical degree then? Foreign medical graduates, FMG. Oh, FM? FMG, Foreign Medical Medical Graduates. Now, that is an MD degree as opposed to a DO degree. But it's just from a foreign medical school. Okay. So. Okay. That's interesting. Very interesting. So yeah. just from the German system, at least, you go straight to medical school and you do the first two years of physicum, which or is more like or less, pre-med. which it's, is like what, mm-hmm. what, to my understanding, I would compare to the pre-med. Mm-hmm. So, like so chemistry, so they, physics, exactly. biology, so, yes. anatomy, yes. Right. physiology. Yes. Right. So, so here as well, other. if you major in art history, for example, you would still be required to have your pre-med classes. If, if you didn't major in a science, mm-hmm. you would still... Yes and no. I mean... I, I know I had, I was enrolled in the pre-med program. Yes. So I had... I don't know, a certain number of classes. I don't remember anymore how many, but it was something like 20 credits or something like that that I had to do in anatomy and and organic chemistry, et cetera, just just towards pre-med. So like biology or like chemistry or, you know, arts or engineering, pre-med is a just a, a track of study that indicates that you're interested in going to medical school. Now, you don't have to be... Pre-med. You don't have to go through all the pre-med requisitions to get into medical school. Is that okay? Right? okay. Yeah. You, I mean, there are people that get in with arts degrees or language okay. degrees. I will tell you this. When you choose the pre-med track and say you're going to a school like my daughter goes to Creighton and she was thinking she wanted to do pre-med. Well, if you go to an undergraduate program that has a medical school and you're on the pre-med track, I will tell you this, they make it extremely difficult. They have, you know, special 
chemistry, biology courses, anatomy courses that are super hard to try to quote unquote weed out those that maybe aren't up to um, uh, serious or academically um, fit fit to uh, to go on to medical school. So they do if you do Selection choose or, or, pre-med, mm-hmm. it is uh, it's not for the faint of heart. It's mm-hmm. not for those that aren't academically fit. It's similar in Germany. I mean, the yeah. first two years are fairly dry. Mm-hmm. A lot of things just to learn by heart, like sure. you know, the whole anatomy and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. And then afterwards, there's still a lot to learn, as you mm-hmm. know. Um, but yeah, there's a little bit more clinical sort of mm-hmm. context to it. And, and then when you're applying to medical school, not only is it how well did you do in your undergraduate, not only is it how well did you do in your MCAT exam, but you are expected to have some additional things that set you apart from other candidates. You know, leadership, be that within the, the university or, you know, the community. The community. Or- Do you show some sort of uh, interest by volunteering at the hospital or going to, you know, a, a clinic or going on medical mission trips and things. So there are other factors that that will help you mm-hmm. in your application and getting into a medical school. Certainly just to kind of get beyond the, the first step, though you have to do well undergraduate. And then, of course, there's also oftentimes uh, an interview process that you mm-hmm. have to go through to get into mm-hmm. medical school. And sometimes you have to have letters of recommendations from people that, that know you and have maybe taught you or been involved in charity work or social work or whatever it is. So those are all part of the factors on how do you get to that next step, which is to get into medical school. And then a little different from the German system, most undergraduates four years, most medical schools are four years. So it's a total usually of about eight years that can vary depending on how you do. A lot of times, if people... what do you mean by that? So, so, so can it be extended? Yeah. Okay. And this okay. is what I was, uh, I was going to get at is that a lot of people, you know, you do your four years, maybe you don't do as well as you like in undergraduate. Maybe you don't do as well on the MCAT and you want to bolster or boost your resume for when you go. A lot of people will take one year, two years, and work in a lab doing uh, research. Okay. Um, and that's a very, very good way to show you know, how well you're interested in that. Also can help boost your application getting into. So that extends the process from being four years of undergrad. Maybe it's five or six, mm-hmm. you know. Or maybe you go off and do a year of, you know, travel, Peace Corps, whatever, you know, right. it is that to try to um, make yourself more. But that is more attractive or more uh, well-rounded or more. Correct. Uh, UMKC has always been very much they want the well-rounded uh, individual. That's already, I mean, well, I think it's also true for, for Germany, but already this focus on community work or your character or mm-hmm. um, extracurricular activities, etc., is is much, yeah. much stronger in, in the US, United States mm-hmm. than, than in Germany. I, I think that this is quite foreign to, to German students. This needs to have done 
some mm. social work, some uh, commitment to to sports, to leadership, sports, to yeah. uh, music, to whatever. Although music. it comes as I, well. I, into... I will I will say something. I mean, traditionally, to get into medical school, your grades in high mm-hmm. school count. So you know, they just it's actually given by the government. Can you, you apply for one, two, three um, sort of choices of medical mm-hmm. universities? And then depending on your grades, they will sort of filter out who gets to go where. Mm-hmm. And it used to be almost exclusively that, but now all the universities give out a higher percentage of their places mm-hmm. to people who can apply directly, mm-hmm. which also goes through uh, interviews and different mm-hmm. tests and what you've done. And it is also because I think they have had trouble finding enough doctors kind of because it's not as well paid and so on as it used to be and um, a lot of former nurses or emergency paramedics Mm -hmm. choose to after time because they really have not as good working conditions and some are really bright and really interested in medicine Mm -hmm. And then do that as a second career. And mm-hmm. if you have worked in any of those fields, you actually also get extra credits. You still get some interviews and depends on the university. So sure. that's not sort of everywhere the same. And, and but there are sort of all these interests that you've had into yeah. that be medical mm-hmm. or other things sort of help you. And then another sort of piece of that puzzle as well is medical schools are looking to be diverse, I'm looking at women. My medical school class had over 50% women, African-Americans, Asians, Indian population. They're looking for diversity, poor, coming from very, you know, poor backgrounds, socioeconomics. Mm -hmm. So all that is kind of taken into account when you're trying to get into, into medical school. Well, in Germany, it's really competitive to get into the university. Your GPA, which uh, your your grade point average, uh, or your Abitur, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit more complicated. I mean, or a little bit more complicated for me. But it's basically it's uh, your your grades from high school are taken into some sort of an equation with your Abitur, which is your baccalauréat, which is your high school final exams, mm-hmm. which we don't have here in the States. We right. have the college entrance exams. Correct. But in, in you know, in Europe, in France, in, in, in mm-hmm. Germany, you have the, at the end of high school, you have yes. the end of high school exams in all your major subjects. And your GPA, which, which we base on your grade point average on your mm-hmm. grades, is what you get. Do, do you want yeah, to Yeah, you just have one so, average, like, number. Kind of, yeah. and depending on that, sort of one point zero is the best. So that's an A and, plus. And yeah. four point zero is the worst that you can possibly still so pass. A yeah. D, a yeah. D, okay. Yeah. Which is just the opposite. Four is exactly for A us plus here, and <laughs> yeah. one is a D. Yeah, a four point yeah. exactly. So, yeah. so, but, but to get into medical school, it's been one point one. Yeah, which is to, sort of uh-huh. it's an you a, have to be like a, a yes. solid. Or, what would that be? A three point nine. Over the GPA, last in my so. time, now right. it's two. But back then, it was in the last three years. You basically have to have the highest uh, grades in in every subject. Yeah. Yeah. So kind that's of. that's it's incredibly competitive. When I started, it was yeah. one point nine, so it wasn't one point one back then, yeah. but still. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it's yeah. that's that's really crazy, and right. you have to understand that these are eighteen year olds. Yes, these are eighteen. I have taught medical students, and I've had really bright 
young people with their little, you know, 1.0, which in, in the in the American system, 4.0 GPA, sure. plus the entrance exam. So you have to kind of calculate it as this would be kind of a, a, an equation between your SATs, ACTs, mm-hmm. and your GPA, mm-hmm. and you are getting almost perfect results on yes. these. Yes. So I've had medical students who were incredibly bright, and, you know, you, you, you see them. I was teaching them in medical ethics and in medical English and things like that. So I didn't have them for their biology classes or anything um, or their specialty classes but they were young they mm-hmm. did not some of them didn't know where the the major organs were mm-hmm. they they were just uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and mm-hmm. so so that's so so interesting to start medical school mm-hmm. and they were they were stuck they were in a on a path towards becoming a doctor mm-hmm. so it's an interesting system to 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 deal with and that also said some of the best students that I enjoyed most were the ex-nurses, the ex-paramedics mm-hmm. who really had these five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years mm-hmm. on the 18-year-olds mm-hmm. knew why they were studying medicine. Mm-hmm. They were there and they were looking for, I mean, you know, even though I didn't teach the medical classes, mm-hmm. you could see them even with the medical English classes, they asked the questions mm-hmm. that were specifically related to what they were there to study. So they, sure. you could see them, they were sucking the information up yeah. and, 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 and really yeah. passionate yeah. about it. So I think, I, I don't know, I mean, uh, uh, I'm kind of sitting here between the two of you and I, and I, and I see the pros and cons to both systems. Sure. I think that a lot of times in, uh, in the US, especially for women, by the time you graduate uh, medical school, then you go to your residency, et cetera. Whew, I mean, if you're trying to have a family, how, when, um, you have your loans, you have uh, all that. Right. So, so it's also, I can see that point of view. Uh, at the same time with the German system, a lot of times you'll be 24, 25, and you're, you're a doctor. Mm-hmm. So, um, you I still guess have to go through residency, obviously, but yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, some have always been good in school and then go into the next university studies mm-hmm. where they just study, 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 and then they suddenly wake up and, are doctors but knows that they're scared of talking to patients or something like right. it's extreme you know but sort of yeah. that idea that's very interesting what happens when you're actually dealing with patients um you might have the medical knowledge but do you have the maturity do you right. have are you taken seriously do you know enough about life in order to sort of just even understand the patient as a human being etc that was actually one of the main focus of the six-year program was to get you acclimated into dealing with patients we had clinical rotations our very first year we went to a community hospital and we would spend one or two days a week a half a day with a physician in the hospital beginning to learn medicine how to deal with patients, how to take a history, how to do a physical exam, how to come up with a differential diagnosis, how to you know put this all together into a treatment plan. So when you're starting to do that at 17, 18 years old, by the time you graduate at 24, you've been doing it for six years, it's kind of almost second nature to you. And that was a significant thought process in the six-year training program as opposed to, you know, you're doing four years and then you go into, you know, medical school. Well, you're 24 and you've had no clinical. And so you really are kind of when you're going into residency and things, yeah, maybe you're older, but you're, and the other going back to talking about getting on a path 
Well, at least with the six-year program, if you're starting when you're 17, 18 years old, and say you're two years into it and you decide, I don't want to be a doctor. Well, you've fulfilled a lot of your undergraduate but you know when you're 20 years old, 21 years old, as opposed to 24, 26, 28, and you have plenty of time then to change your course in life. Mm. Now, obviously, by being there, you, you have this great opportunity. But if it's not for you, you find that out sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. And it actually can, you know, kind of change your life and basically save you from being going down a path where you feel like you're trapped and you mm. can't go back or you mm. can't do something else. Sure. I had a very interesting experience, I guess, later in my uh, medical school career. I was doing a um, elective rotation in New York City at NYU Hospital, and I was on the cardiothoracic surgery team. And I met one of the interns, first-year residents, and um, he was doing his rotation through that. And one time we were sitting just talking, and he says, uh, I'm just doing this to please my parents. I'm going to do my one-year internship, and then I'm going to Wall Street. <sighs> he said that, you know, his parents really wanted him to do it. He could do it, so he did it. But once he, you know, he promised his parents he would finish an internship. And then he was going to quit medicine and go to Wall Street. So, I, you know. It, the things it's, we do for parents. It's not, yeah, yeah. It's, yep. it's not always, you know, what it's cracked up to be. It's not always what everybody wants. And, uh, and I think going back to your statement about women in medicine, it is very, very difficult. See my wife and some of her friends, you go through school, you go through residency, you're 26, 27, 28, 29 years old, and you're thinking, hmm, I want to be a mom. I want to, you know, I don't want to do this. A lot of her friends, you know, did their residencies, married, and quit medicine. And I think that's where we've kind of gotten in a little bit of a problem in this country in that they were really pushing for women to go into medicine, not taking into account biology, biology. and Sorry. natural human emotions and feelings and desires, which is a lot of which is having a family. And that's where we've kind of pushed our daughters or kind of tried to instruct them, hey, you know. It's okay to be a mom. It's okay to want to have a family and maybe pick a career that is not so onerous on family life. Although saying that is problematic as well, isn't it? I mean, it's it's difficult to say that women shouldn't be doctors, isn't it? I mean, you know, they they should and they should uh, uh, be able to exercise their their profession. No, but I completely no, 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 agree no, with no, you, though. No. It is I have watched so many of my medical students um, afterwards come back and say, "Oh my God, I don't know what to do. Um, I can't deal with the with the what, what we have sort of with the assistance asked." In the residency, the hours, the shifts, the night shifts, um, putting off having a family until then. And then what? And then what? Then you are finally practicing medicine and then you do have a child and then the child is completely only in daycare. This is one of my pet peeves. But but so, so but it's it's such a difficult, isn't mm -hmm. it such a difficult statement? And so you have two daughters even. You know? So, so here's such a the problem is that I, I perceive is that should we have female physicians? Absolutely. If women want to be physicians, absolutely. They, you know, if they're driven and they have the ability, 
Absolutely. And there were some female physicians at UMKC that tried to do this. They have to be mentored by other female physicians that, hey, this is how this works. Or these you are the know, possibilities. The, the of- family life is not what you maybe dreamed of it to be. It is harder. If you don't want to compromise one or the other, it is okay to choose one or the other, okay? To maybe not have kids and be a full-time, hardworking physician. And it's okay to, you know, to let the medical school, the residency, all that go and just focus on being a wife and a mom. That's what, that's where I think we have fallen down. I think that's where we have done a disservice to women in not teaching them and not mentoring them on how this is going to work. It's a very complex, difficult issue. I wonder, um, I mean, how much is that? It depends, obviously, also on, on the field. And it's always difficult to be a female physician and have family at the same time. Yeah. But I don't know how it is in the U.S. Um, what can be done to make it possible for the women to kind of do both? Yeah. Um, in Germany, anesthesiology is actually way easier because you have case to case. You don't have to sort of know all the patients on your ward and so on. Right. But there are a lot of women who do part-time. I mean, you yes. get... You get already um, one year paid maternity leave, and then you get up to three years of maternity leave where they have to take you back. And then a lot of female doctors, which is also, of course, sort of blocking them to accelerate their career, which one has to admit, but they can do, it's very well accepted now to do half time, even quarter time. Um, and, and what you said, though, That will work with some specialties, but it won't work with other specialties. And that's where we need to... Obviously, the residency will also take then twice as long if you only have half time because you still need the time. But here, And then here's the the problem with that because being a male and having been in residency programs with females, okay, when they leave, if you're guaranteeing them a spot, you got an empty spot where you have to fill that amount of work with fewer staff. So you're putting more work, more pressure. Unless you have two half-time person who share a whole... But they don't have that in residency. Okay, Okay, but why not? That's the question. Couldn't they make that? I mean, in in Germany, it doesn't matter if it's residency or if you're... What are you afterwards? A fellow, or what? What's the what's the? Term? There's a or you, you can do a fellowship, or you can go into practice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but then once you've passed the residency, is yes. an exam at the end too? Yeah. The boards. No. Yeah. The boards. Yeah. Yeah. No. Wait. Wait. wait but let's. Let's. Uh, I, Sorry, I, I liked it. No. 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 I'm very. I'm very glad that you're in a discussion. Yes, so, yeah. But let's. Let's just sort of get that clear. Okay. So. So in in Germany, you uh, finish your. Uh, you you finish medical school and you take the boards, mm-hmm. which is called the Staatsexam. So you the have first, the, the first, boards. the general yes, boards. Yeah, yeah. So that's the same boards. Thing. So so same thing here. Um, in Germany, you're also you have to do. Uh, don't you have to do an? Uh, you don't have to do a, doc, a PhD. If you want to have the, doc, the doctor, doctor title, title you so have most, to, but you don't have to. But most people do. Well, especially in most hospitals, if you ever want to be 
attending or you know move up further mm -hmm. there you get in trouble if you don't have the doctor even though it doesn't change anything about your actual so work I think, qualifications mm -hmm. but it's so, not yeah so most people will have an md phd mm -hmm. um, which is i think here not general Correct. No, so so not, so to add on the phd is is an extra it's a it's totally separate kind of deal because for example much. hendrick has yeah. an md phd right so um, so then you do the, your MD PhD and then you are an assistant arzt, so you're an assistant doctor, you're assistant mm. physician, which is like the residency program right, here right. because what you do in Germany is you basically specialize at this point. Mm -hmm. Do five years, for example, anesthesiology, depending on the yeah. specialty, some are six, some are four, but around yeah. about five years most of the time. And, and that's the same become... thing for a medical residency or surgery residency in the United States. So. Your MD, I guess, is more like our BA degree, and your PhD is more like our MD degree, I would kind of... Although it comes at the same time in Germany. And you don't there have is no, There is no right. break in right. between, but right. yeah. But it's kind of the equivalent Possibly, of those, yeah. yeah. But then there's an exam after yes. your residency or yes. your assistance arts. Yes. There is a, yes. an exam for your exactly. fach arts, for your yes. specialty. So yes. here as well. So you yes. take an, then a, an exam yes. to be a board certified surgeon or board certified internal medicine Anesthesi or board certified or, anesthesiologist. Okay. Yes. So, so then so far we're, <laughs> we're on That's, the same level. Yeah, just yeah. Different and names. at this point, just different, names, right? <laughs> different names. And at this point in Germany, you just have different, you can go into private practice same, or, yeah. or you can, or you can continue a hospital career and then you have different uh, responsibilities. So you can become Oberarzt, which is attending, mm -hmm. if I, I think. Not I'm, right away, usually, but potentially. Exactly. Yes. And then you can become Chefarzt or Chief of Staff. Yeah. So that's basically what can happen in Germany. In the hospital. The steps in a hospital, or right. you have your private practice. Right. In Germany, what are the fellowships? The fellowships are extra specializations. Right. So, so okay. it's like um, cardiology would be a, a fellowship, oh, or right. infectious okay. disease would be a fellowship. Or ah, right. colorectal surgery would be a fellowship. So wait, so for example, your pain management and your um, um, tummy, um, ICU, not ICU, and done, also yeah. the, the the emergency medicine, the tummy. That's the, a small fellowship. Tummy, what is it called in, 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 in emergency in, medicine? No, but in German, it's called Notarzt. Um, genau. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so those are yeah. fellowships. So those are, and you I have to so. do those too as well because. You don't have to. You don't but, have to, right. But Fellowship still thing. also, if you depending on where you want to be, it's better if you okay. have sort of more of these extra certificates. Okay. Uh, right. so, just, so just so we have the, 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 the systems yeah. down a little bit. It's very, very, very similar. It's just the difference, like you say, in terminology. In terminology. But when you're an assistance arts, so when you're doing your residency, mm -hmm. you can be an assistance arts and be hired for 10 hours a week. At the hospital. Mm. So this going back to the debate about women in medicine. Sure. So it can't, it is possible and correct me if I'm wrong. It is possible theoretically for four individuals. I mean, of course, the, the, the hospital has to pay different insurance and so it becomes more expensive for the hospital, but for sure two people share, can share a position. So half time, part time. Right. Um, but it theoretically is possible to have, for example, four individuals sharing one position. Right. And so no positions left. Right. Unattended. They don't have anything like that in the United States. What they have, you know, each residency program is given so many positions. And those are always full-time positions. Oh, okay. Okay. 
There's no such thing as part-time position positions. Um, so, you know, say a woman comes in, she's in a three-year family practice residency. Halfway through her first year, she gets pregnant and wants to, you know, take 10 weeks off afterwards. You have to give that, but she then has to add 10 weeks on to the end of her Okay. So, but while she is gone, somebody's got to pick up, pick that. up that oh, work. So it's much, much okay. more. So that puts That's an additional puts all the burden on those, those that are left. Yeah. And then, yeah. Uh, and also 10 weeks in comparison to what you get in Germany is also, I mean, 10 weeks is two and a half months. Yeah. No, no. I mean, we have, we have four months uh, maternity leave, mm -hmm. forced maternity leave. <laughs> Oh really? So it's it's yeah. uh, you're it's fully paid and it's forced. Yeah. I mean, you're not allowed to work. Um, you're allowed to work up to birth, but you were allowed to take twelve weeks before uh, birth, mm -hmm. and you're allowed or you're forced four months after right. um, after birth, and you have uh, one year, actually fourteen months with your spouse that you can share that are fully paid. No. One. Two thirds. Paid. Oh, sorry. That's, that's right. Four four months are fully paid and two thirds paid. Sorry, yeah, two yeah. thirds. And then an additional two years that you can take without pay, but your position has to be kept. And an additional up to the child's eighth birthday, another an additional year that you can also take. So. Yeah. So none of that happens in the United States. You can take a year off, but that's not paid. And there's usually no guarantee that they're going to hold your spot. You have to be really, really... Um, good terms with your boss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do you feel about that? Because I agree with you. There's biology and there's, you know, these choices that right, people can make. Right. But surely we could approach the problem from a different point of view as well. Surely hospitals mm -hmm. or... Uh, Governmental institutions could make it easier for women. How do you so, feel about that? Well, so here we get into the whole socioeconomical ramifications. How do you pay for that? This country is not willing to put forth the additional taxes, expense, whatever, lack of profit to fund something like that. That's going to have to be a whole cultural shift which is not, not anywhere near happening now, and particularly in surgery. It's a macho, you know, thing, you know, where the men are men and the women are men. And, you know, and it's, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, you know, we used to have a saying when I was a resident in New York, if you're on call every other night, you're missing half the cases. So that was, that's kind of the mentality. Really? Wow. So... Um, so that's a big difference between um, the American and the and in that little piece of the puzzle as far as the training goes. And that's where, you know, it's now in the in the practice world, you know, Michelle works three days a week and she kind of job shares with another partner. And in family practice, that's much easier to do. You got to get much, there. Yeah. And, mm. But then but then. <laughs> And here's once again where, so if you're in private practice and you own your own practice and you're running your own practice and you're funding your own practice and you're 
doing the expenses and all that kind of stuff, and you're paying your full malpractice because they don't give you, there's not a part-time malpractice and a full-time malpractice. Your malpractice is your malpractice, okay? And that's a big thing. The lights on in the clinic are the lights on in the clinic. It's not like when you leave and your 20% goes away that the lights go off 20% or that that nurse that is expecting to be paid full-time when you are working only 20% of the time, she's not going to take a 20% cut as well. So here's where the the practicality of it comes in is if you are your own boss in your own practice, financially, it's very, very, very tough to work part-time mm. to be able to justify that. As an example, if I can... When Michelle was pregnant with the twins, that year, there were some other health issues involved. She worked seven months. She had five months off for maternity and some other medical issues. So she worked seven months as a physician, working her normal full time. Five months she was off. Her take-home pay for that year, for that year working as a Position seven months, two thousand dollars is what she took home that year. In the year, for the whole year. Wow! Because your expenses don't stop when you leave the office; they continue, and that has to come out of your pie. Your insurance does not stop; you continue to have to pay that. Wow. And that's where then, okay, well, maybe I need to be an employed physician or a professor somewhere where you know, maybe there is a little bit of university protection mm. or something else. But even then, it's still not. Mm. And, and here's the other economic side of being a f- female or any other person that wants to work part-time. In the United States, you pay for your college education for the most part. <laughs> I was going to okay. bring it up, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, between undergraduate four years and, say, you know, medical school four years, on average, on average, the you're spending about three to $400,000. On average, most medical students in the United States that come out in debt or about $200,000 in debt on average. So you come out with that kind of debt, that kind of money invested in your education and training. In my opinion, it's hard to justify working two days, three days a week. It's going to take you your entire career to pay pay off the debt and to make any sort of profit off of that. So basically, it's a hobby medicine. If you're going to go through all that and work part-time. You really have to think about it, yeah. Uh, I was thinking of exactly that. And I think also in America, in residency, you don't make that big (laughs) kind of money. So so then if you sort of do those... Well, you don't in Germany either. I mean, as as No, but we come out. I don't have a debt from my... No, you don't have a debt. What I make, I make. And and also... um, I don't know how that is here, but I mean, in Europe, first of all, there are not as many lawsuits in, in mm-hmm. medicine at right, all. Right. And secondly, as long as you're employed by the hospital, the hospital covers it all. I mm-hmm. mean, and 
if ever anybody sues, the hospital will take care of it. They yeah. might question you. I know a couple actually had to sort of go to some hearing, mm-hmm. but it's extremely rare. And uh, we were talking to friends in in Dallas, um, an anesthesiologist couple, and he was saying that one week, remember, one one day a week was court date. Mm-hmm. Is that normal? No. No, so okay. it sounds a but bit, seemed yeah, normal. But, maybe, yeah, that that's yeah. not. Maybe um, he was also exaggerating. But maybe yeah. he was exaggerating a bit. But he was really saying that one day a week he spent yeah. in court. Yeah. But that was planned. Then it was Tuesdays yeah. was his court date. I, mean, I still yeah. remember. So here's where that whole situation has changed a lot in say the last ten years. Ten years ago, six percent of physicians in the United States were employed physicians, employed by a hospital, employed by a health system, employed by an insurance company, employed by a, a university, okay? 6%, 94% of physicians were their own bosses. They practiced private practice and things. Over this, say, past 10 years, that number of 6% is now about 66%. Oh, really? Good. Well, that's... Yeah. Wow. Is that good? Okay. Yeah. Is that good? Because no, I was going to well, say that's great, but um, it depends okay. <laughs> on when myself and my generation became physicians. One of the one of the things that was very appealing about medicine you could be your own boss. But when you're an employed physician, you're no longer your own boss. Mm-hmm. You have somebody telling you you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do you know. You have to make this many uh, surgeries of that kind, and you have to increase your numbers every year. Exactly. That's what there's happens every year. There's yeah. somebody looking over your shoulder. There's mm-hmm. somebody telling you you have to do you know this sort of training. You have to do this computer work. You have to do this um, um, EMR and stuff. So all that drove the overhead so high that nobody could afford to be in private practice. And that's why everybody's moved into being an employed physician. That's the change in the economics of medicine in the United States. So when you're an employed physician, then just like what Hendrik said, um, your uh, malpractice is paid, so so you don't have any of these costs. You are working for the hospital. And then I assume, just like with you guys, I'm looking at Hendrik, um, you then are given your shifts and your working hours and the surgeries and pretty yeah, much are yeah, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the other thing about the liability, the legal liability. Even though the hospital is paying your malpractice, you're still liable for anything that goes beyond your malpractice. So, you know, OBGYN, surgery, anesthesia, neurosurgery, very, very high liability professions. Every day you put your foot on the ground, you put this house, that car, that, you know, trip, you know, your income, you're at, at risk that some lawyer that is able to convince a jury that you were negligent, if it exceeds what your malpractice covers, the hospital's not paying that. The insurance company's not paying that. That's coming out of yeah. your mm-hmm. own. So 
there still is a lot of legal liability, even if you're an employed physician. So let's go to your daily uh, practicing okay. medicine. Sure. How, how does what, sure. what is a, a day in the life of Tom Franey? So <laughs> here's here's uh, my. I, I'm gonna kind of put it into into a week somewhere. Okay, that's yeah. easier. Basically, I have two full days where I just do surgery, morning to night. Um, there's one day when I'm just in the office all day long, and then there are. Two days where half a day in the office, half a day in surgery. And then typically I'm on call. That's, you know, answering phone calls from nurses, hospitals, doctors, emergency rooms, patients, doing consults, doing emergency surgeries. Usually that's one day a week. And I have three partners. So we're talking about dividing up a week or a month into four people. Um, so then that means usually one weekend a month. When I say weekends, our weekends go from Friday to Monday morning. Um, you're on call. And when you're on working on the weekends, Saturday, Sunday, and you're on call, you're rounding on not only your patients, but your partner's patients. I'm on staff at basically three hospitals. I mainly work out of one hospital. But I do go to some of these other hospitals, number one, to cover my other partners that maybe do more work at that hospital, cover call and things. But for the most part, I work mainly out of one, partially out of two, very little out of a third hospital. And then I have two different offices I go to. So two half days, I'm in one office, two half days, I'm in another office. So how does that work? So yeah. you say you're, you're on staff at three different hospitals. Yes. Do you feel comfortable saying which sure. ones? Okay. Yeah. Research Hospital is my main one. And then I'm also on staff at St. Joseph Medical Center and at Menorah Medical Center and at Overland Park Regional Medical Center. So I'm on staff at four hospitals, but I mainly work at one and a little bit at the other two. And what does that mean when you say I'm on staff? Okay. So, in order to work in a hospital, you have to apply for privileges. In other words, the hospital has to say, yes, we grant you to be able to come into this hospital and work. You fulfill whatever requirements there are, training, education, malpractice, insurance coverage, all those. There's a whole list of things that you have to fulfill in order to be able to work in that hospital. Oh, so the hospital's not paying you anything. This no, is just for you to be able to... This is just for me to be able to... Do anything at this work hospital. in that hospital. Right. Okay. And so maybe you can ask it better because um, I, I don't understand how the system really works. It's, it's, isn't it strange to you as well? It's, it's very different than... It's very, very different. So you have... First of all, you, you, your, your group... Way back when I was still living here, there were HMOs and there were all these. Yeah. Are we talking? These Are these the groups? Or? Okay. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, that's not a... That's not a um, what what happened are, to that? Or what, what was... Okay. We, is that no longer a trend or was that... Am I that correct, far back? Or, yeah. Because okay. um, I think that's what we have in Germany now. Yeah. I don't know what HMOs... Well, HMOs were kind of like to me like the... Health maintenance organizations, what HMO stands for. They were like the Krankenkassen. Okay. Um, and so Kaiser certain- Permanente is a, I don't know, have you ever heard of Kaiser? It's a California-based. And it's, but I think it's like the Kantenkassen. So there were certain doctors who 
specifically were they were recommended you explained it i mean okay so what an hmo is is it is a insurance company an insurance company that has a panel of doctors uh-huh. that in order for you if you're on that insurance plan you have to use those doctors okay they used to be like that oh. there well so there there <laughs> were um there are different types of hmos okay what you're thinking of is a staff model HMO where the insurance company has their own buildings, their own clinics, their own brick and mortar. They have they pay those doctors directly, and that's kind of a staff model HMO. Do those um, still exist? And there are Kaiser so in California Kaiser okay. is a staff model HMO. Okay. Very, very big, very powerful organization in California. There really aren't any here in Kansas City, I'm trying to think. There really isn't. Kaiser used to be here. There used to be a I Kaiser I remember group Kaiser here. from, yeah. And uh, they left town. Prime Health was another staff model yeah. HMO. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that. A lot of those have gone away. Now, HMO is still an insurance plan, an insurance, a, a, a type of plan where the insurance company tells you, they give you a list of doctors and hospitals that you can go to as being preferred providers. In other words, if you go to that doctor, you go to that hospital, then you don't pay anything out of pocket. If you go outside of that on an elective basis, not on an emergency basis, but on an elective basis, then you're paying more out of your pocket rather than just your insurance premium. What happens if it's an emergency situation? Well, if it's an emergency and they deem it an emergency, and then they will cover it. Okay. Sometimes 100%, sometimes 90 80%, you know, for them. But for the most part, if it's an emergency kind of a situation, then yes, they will cover it. May I? Sure. Please go on with that. But let me, let me just sort of interject with one question. Um, one of the stereotypes that we have is, uh, you know, sort of from the movies or, or and, mm-hmm. I, and I keep saying it's not true, that people in the United States will be turned away in an emergency situation. You know, so you have the scene in the movies where there is a car accident and uh, the, the person's rushed to the hospital and then he's, he's turned away and he has to, they have to take him to, to another hospital because he, they don't accept him. And does this happen? No. Um, about 20 years ago, there was a national law passed called EMTALA, Emergency Medical Transfer and Liabilities, uh, something around mm-hmm. E-M-T-A-L-A. And it's a federal law that a hospital emergency department is obligated to at least stabilize and transfer to an appropriate facility. P- facility. Okay. And- say somebody comes in with a vascular injury. You know, a gunshot wound that uh, severs a major artery, and there's no vascular surgeon in that hospital emergency. Yes, they will take you into the emergency room. They'll put a tourniquet on or whatever, and then they will uh, affect a transfer to a hospital where there is a vascular surgeon or you know a pulmonary doctor or a cardiologist if you need a cath or something like that. Sure. So, um, so yes, you have to be treated or have to be admitted to the emergency department, but not necessarily admitted to the hospital or treated there, then if there's if that specialty, whatever you need, is not available there, then... But you will receive emergency yes. medical care yes. even if you're not yes. insured. Yes. What happens also to the Also operations if they're then possible in that facility and necessary right away. Correct. What happens to the costs? 
Then, um, it goes, then it becomes a legal thing. Oh, okay. Well, if the patient has insurance, then they the hospital is allowed to bill their insurance. If the patient has uh, government insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, hospital can bill that. If there's any outlying costs after insurance, then they can bill the patient. Now, you've heard of trying to get blood from a stone or... You know, most of the time that's impossible to do, but yeah, you can bill for services rendered that mm-hmm. um, that aren't paid for. So, and the other uh, one of the, the questions from my classes uh, often is, um, as far as I know, there are governmentally funded hospitals. So even if you do not have medical insurance, there are governmental hospitals where you can go and receive the care that you need. So here's how, yes, there are city hospitals, county hospitals, state hospitals. Now, does that mean you can go there and get free care? No, that's not necessarily true. They will try to help you if you are below a certain level, get Medicaid, okay, to have the state then reimburse the hospital. They will help you if you're Medicare eligible to get you Medicare to get that to pay, but they're not going to dump you out on the street if you're needing care. But does that mean it's free care? No. Mm. But if you don't have any money, is it free care? Yes. Because mm. like I said, you can't get. And there are, you know, a few safety nets, ways that they can try to get you covered in financially in some ways, but it you can still be ruined financially by you know, needing extensive medical care and not having the resources to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So. so going back to, to you and to, mm-hmm. so you're on staff yes. at three yes. different hospitals, yes. which means you can, at four different hospitals, four hospitals, which means you can actually go, and go into these, these hospitals. Yes. But you have three partners, Yes. but you are completely independent, private you are not affiliated with another um, organization or group or insurance or... or Actually, so- we are. Okay. We are affiliated <laughs> with um, HCA, which is the largest hospital corporation in the world. They have a physician arm group of HCA that manages us. So, yes, we are part of that 66, 70% of physicians now that are um, employed physicians. So we are no longer, we are not in private practice. Now, our compensation is based upon our work, paid on a production basis. You work, you get paid. If you don't work, you don't get paid. But that pay is generated or doled out through the hospital corporation, HCA. So I find interesting. So you work from your practice. Mm Mm-hmm. You go and do your big operation surgery in Mm -hmm. mainly one hospital, but in those different hospitals. Yes. And um, the hospital, you're on their staff, but you're not really employed by them. They don't pay you. Pretty much. Right. That's correct. Do you have to pay them to be allowed to use their ORs and, I mean, of course, their personnel? Okay. there's just a very nominal fee to, you know, a couple hundred dollars, an application fee, so to speak. Uh, but no, you don't say, all right, well, I'm 
going to be here for eight hours. You know, you're going to charge me $400 an hour to use the operating. No, that all comes with using the hospital because then the hospital uses that patient and bills their insurance company. And that's how they get, the hospital gets mm. paid. Paid. It's by the, the patient's insurance company. Okay, so that's how they profit from it. That's how they profit from it. And um, billions of dollars of profit <laughs> from it. Yeah. But you are still rounding on them afterwards mm -hmm. as long as your patients then stay in the hospital. Correct. Whereas there are probably also some physicians there on the wards the whole time to watch after them and you just check on them or how does it work? Or do you yeah. do you do all their medical sort of Do you decide on all the medication and do all, all that basic work? Yeah. So Or usually, for you? yeah, usually there's a team of physicians. Usually there's a hospitalist, a internal medicine, family practice doctor that is kind of in charge of, of managing the patient and all the consultants then participate in that, in that mm -hmm. management of the care. Mm -hmm. So, You may have a, you'll have your hospitalist seeing you on a daily basis. You might be seeing the surgeon, you might be seeing the pulmonary doctor, the cardiologist, maybe the endocrinologist for your um, diabetes. Um, there might be a nephrologist managing your dialysis and stuff. So usually there's a team, multiple doctors involved in one patient in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And patient. those are then, but really, really employed by the hospital. Or are they also outside? Also outside, yeah. Uh, so are even anesthesiologists kind of outside or is, is there like any group that's... Okay. So in this market, and when yeah. I say in this market, it's different than... I have a friend that's an anesthesiologist in Scottsdale, Arizona. Totally different way okay. that the anesthesiologists are managed. In this, in Kansas City... There are large groups of anesthesiologists that form a corporation. Um, Anesthesia Associates of Kansas City is the big one that's at Research in Menorah and Overland Park. And it's a large group of anesthesiologists that contract with the hospital. They, the hospital gives them so much money per unit of anesthesia. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe, you know, a certain amount of money for, um, for covering the ICU or for doing this or doing that. Um, and, and then usually the anesthesiologist as well will bill insurance companies um, for um, providing services. Interesting. So they're getting compensated by both the hospital and the insurance companies, mainly because Nowadays, so many patients don't have insurance, don't have any way to pay it. So that's how where the hospital steps in, and and then the hospital has ways to, through government funding, get some of that money back. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's crazy. Because very complex. It's crazy. In, in 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 comparison, in Germany, there are some doctors who work from private practices and mm -hmm. kind of rent. OR mm -hmm. um, capacities in hospitals mm -hmm. for some surgeries, but not big surgeries, no mm -hmm. like big abdominal surgeries. It's usually like, I, I don't know, some hand surgeries or knee uh, um, atroscopies, yeah. like little stuff like that. Most of it am ambulatory, so yes. you go home the same, same day. But For example, in general surgery, it's all doctors. They're usually the attendings with some of the residents that operate mm -hmm. together. 
that's all hospital staff. Mm -hmm. So depending on the size of the hospital, of course, it's like the small hospital. They have a smaller staff for every specialization. Sure. So they have a lot of calls or have to be on duty quite a lot. Yeah. But yeah, they're just paid by tariffs, so not as much as they operate. Yeah. They just, you know, in Germany, it's like all depending on how many years you've worked and what specialty, that's what you get, unless mm -hmm. you are in the end like the chief, then, then yeah. you can do your own sort of deals with the hospital. Yeah. And if you go, if you leave the hospital area and go into a private practice, you usually do just sort of really small stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. you do, some have like their own tiny ORs, they run one or two days yeah. within their practice and they yeah. have an anesthesiologist come in, yeah. but that's really then only quite healthy people, small surgery, no, no yeah. big stuff, no yeah. transfusion, no ICU, yeah. nothing like that. So here's the next step in that as far as what takes place here, particularly in orthopedics. Orthopedic surgeons, they will build their own hospitals their own surgery centers and with some inpatient beds where they own it and they bring anesthesia in to, to do the anesthesia, like total hips, total joints, shoulders and things. You know, they'll bring, you come into their hospital, they do the surgery, they put you, you know, maybe you spend the night in the hospital. They arrange, they have their own physical therapist that they're doing the physical therapy for them. And then they're billing the insurance company for the physical therapy. They're billing the insurance company for the surgery. They're billing the insurance company for the use of the OR and the overnight stay in the hospital and all that kind of stuff. And that's how medicine in the United States has become more profitable is by physicians becoming essentially entrepreneurs, their own businessmen, their yeah, own yeah. Uh, running their own hospitals and in operating rooms and providing other services and billing for that and taking, you know, some of the uh, some of the profit off of that. So that's how the economics has evolved for physicians to be profitable in the United States is if you want to be really, really profitable. You manage your own uh, businesses and your offices and things like, like in primary care, like in my wife's group, they have uh, radiology, they have laboratory, and they provide all those services for the patient, build the insurance company, and you know make a little profit off of each test that they do for the patient mm -hmm. and stuff. So, in, in some parts that exist, though, in bigger cities, too, I mean, there are these centers that private kind of mm -hmm. hospitals only as very specialized on you know they only do prostates with yes. da Vinci and they yeah. just do them yeah. in quarter of the time then exactly. hospital too because yeah. that's all they do yes yeah and and they are they only also have like highly they don't do any education for younger doctors they only have mm -hmm. sort of yes uh, the really experienced specialists there yes. and yeah. the, the urology group here in town there's a huge urology group and you know they They staff hospitals and they do surgeries in hospitals, but they have their own radiation oncologist to do their prostate radiation. They have their own centers where they do, you know, BCG installation in the bladder, treating bladder cancers. They do their own hormonal therapy for prostate cancer. Uh, they have their own lithotripsy unit to do lithotripsy for stones. So there's 
and particularly in those talking about fellowships in those super specialties where those doctors if they can band together and work together and have the resources to fund financially and build these uh, these institutions then they can there's a great possibility for for large profits uh, and that's how you get yeah, so medicine gets on if, specialized. If you're, if you're just practicing medicine, if you're just seeing patients or just doing surgeries and stuff, you're not going to make a whole lot of money. It's it's when you get involved in some of these other things, it's where you really can uh, can be very profitable. So let's go to your specialty. Okay. So um, tell us about what you specialize in, okay. what your what your surgeries, what the bulk of your surgeries are. Okay. So as a general surgeon, and general surgery is very broad, has a lot of different things that you can do with that. A lot of people try to focus on just a few things, um, but general surgery can encompass breast cancer, colon cancer, thyroid disease, parathyroid disease, skin cancers soft tissue tumors, minor, you know, infections. And so it's a, it's a, a very broad category. Uh, hernias, gallbladders, uh, are also appendix, appendectomies. Um, that's just a, a small smattering of a lot of things that uh, general surgeons do. In my career now, I'm focusing more on the, what we call the elective surgery. My younger partners are more focused on the acute care surgeries, the the really you know big surgeries, the uh, emergency things that walk into the hospital or the emergency room um, and need to be taken care of. I'm focusing more on, at this point in my career on elective surgeries, the hernias, the uh, elective gallbladders, breast cancer. I do a lot of breast cancer and um, endocrine surgery, thyroid, parathyroid, and I still do some emergency surgery when I'm on call, but that's not the bulk of my practice anymore. So. That surprises me, actually, because for, for example, thyroid surgery, that's the um, H&O, uh, H&O, or no, it's ENT, ENT, isn't it ENT a lot of times? In my old hospital it was, but now where I am, it's also done by general surgery more. Thyroids, they sometimes fight about. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> you want me to get into that fight? Sure, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so traditionally, the <laughs> head and neck general surgeons do this kind of surgery, thyroid, parathyroid. It's only been recently that the e- e- ENT, ear, nose, and throat doctors have become more active in that kind of uh, surgery. But traditionally, it's been the general surgeons, some of which specialize in head and neck, that that do okay. that kind of surgery. So and and breast cancer is in Germany. Usually, breast cancer is the gynecological well, oncology, is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's um, in the United States. It's totally general surgeons, but there are a lot of general surgeons now that specialize and only do breast cancer mm-hmm. surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are fellowships for huh. uh, breast cancer now. Um, so. Uh, really? But the great majority of breast cancer is done by, you know, most general surgeons. Okay. Uh, that's one of those things where female surgeons have kind of really uh, found a niche. Because uh, a lot of women like to see women doctors. And breast cancer, 99% of which is in females. So 
Not to mention that it's also kind of a, a family-friendly type of practice because it's not a lot of emergency breast surgery in the middle of the night or on weekends and those kind of things. So you can be a lot more controlled with your, your practice by doing that. So. so I would love to ask you more specific questions about the surgeries that you mm -hmm. do. So let's take hernias. In my training, in my years, it was all done, what we call open surgery, where you make an incision and you go and you fix the hole. Hernia is a hole. You fix the hole, whether it be with stitches or with mesh. So that was 30 years ago. Mesh was not used very much. All the surgery was done open. And then uh, an evolution of that was then we were using more mesh, still with open surgery. And then kind of the next step was fixing hernias with a scope through a small incision, laparoscope. So a that became very popular for a while. To me, in my experience, and that was about 20 years into my practice, just didn't make a whole lot of sense. It was a lot of required general anesthesia. It required mesh. It required all this big equipment, big cost. A uh, lot more time to Takes do longer. this. Yeah, same. Okay. Yeah. I never bought that that was a better way to do it. You know, you can build mousetraps and some are better. Some aren't as good as the old ones. Okay. I was never convinced that the laparoscopic repair of hernias was the way to go. So fortunately for me, I was established and I could do basically what I thought was right. And I'm continuing to do what I think is right, which is the best way to do hernia repairs. 30, 35 years of experience and seeing it done. But there are a lot of younger surgeons out there that either A, that's the only way they were taught to do it was mm. laparoscopically. Mm. Um, or B, patients have heard on podcasts and <laughs> TV and internet. Oh, you have to have it done laparoscopically. That's the new, that's the greatest way to do it. That's called marketing, okay? <laughs> and when you're young and you're trying to build a practice, you want to market yourself. So you're going to do it the way that people hear and want and see, and it's the newest and greatest. And, uh, you know, did you ever read that book, Aerosmith? No. Um, I can't think of the author right now, but. Uh, great book, talks about, this is a turn-of-the-century doctor in small-town Illinois, and he has in his office, he learned this from one of the older physicians, big office, a bunch of lights and cords and everything, and he's like, why do you have that? And the surgeon says, well, because it looks good. You know? <laughs> um, it's, it's all about perception and marketing, okay? doesn't necessarily mean that's the right way to do it. So I, I'm far enough along in my career that, you know, I'm going to say, hey, this is the way I do it. This is what I think is the right way to do it. And if you don't like it that way, go down the hallway to, you know, Joe Blow, who just came out of residency two years ago and you get it done. You know, laparoscopically. Laparoscopically. <laughs> you know, for an umbilical hernia, I make a, you know, a one or two inch incision, fix it that way. Laparoscopically, you're making four or five incisions. You've got 
mesh in there and you've got all this other doesn't make any sense to me so that's one kind of mm-hmm. me as opposed to how a lot of other surgeons do it mm-hmm. um, gallbladders the laparoscopic surgery for gallbladder came in 30 years ago right when i was finishing my residency i did a few and then i really kind of brought my older partners along by doing it that that is one operation it's one alteration that has revolutionized uh, the surgical care of the gallbladder. Now, they've tried to do laser and they've tried to do uh, the robot that adds nothing to that surgery, but clearly laparoscopic surgery for the gallbladder is a better mousetrap. It's a better way to do it. They talk about laparoscopic surgery for, for colon resections. And that's, you know, there's... Uh, a surgeon out south and another one of the hospitals that travels all over the country talking about his robotic surgery. As you can attest, it takes a lot longer. The patient's in these terrible positions for hours and blood loss. and uh, Especially from an anesthesia point of view, yes. um, I, I can totally share your experience. Of course, like you say, appendix, uh, gallbladder, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But where I'm working now at like a bigger university center, um, they do a lot more robotic surgeries and they do like every hemicolectomy uh, laparoscopically. They do pancreas with robots and laparoscopic and I don't know, just it takes eight, ten hours where an open pancreas can be done from an old hospital in like three hours. Yeah. So it just that the positions that you often have to put the patient in, you get in trouble with the with the ventilation. You know, often they have comorbidities. You know, lung and cardiac uh, disease, and it just makes the whole thing yes. so much more risky. I mean, yes. we've had we've had cases where because it's always sold to the patients that's being so much safer and easier. But actually, we've had cases where we've had to change the technique during the operation. They always, they always uh, consent into if there's anything, we might change the technique and, you know, open up from laparoscopic to, to open. Mm-hmm. And there have been cases where it had to be done because in that position that we just couldn't, the pressures were just too high that we had to change management. And, 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 and to... to we want innovation. We want new things in, in medicine. Um, but there's got to be, you know, some common sense to it sometimes, too. There's been some recent studies, and you may have seen these, where laparoscopic surgery for rectal cancer, um, laparoscopic robotic surgery for laparoscopic, the long-term cancer outcomes are not as good as open surgery. So we should be taking a step back and maybe going back and not doing these. I mean, you have to study that to know that. But newest and greatest is not always the best. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a conference in New York City on endocrine surgery. I do a lot of thyroids, parathyroid surgery. Make one small incision in the neck. They were talking about robotic thyroidectomy and laparoscopic or endoscopic thyroidectomy. The robotic thyroidectomy, they make incisions around the breasts 
Oh, one in the armpit mm-hmm. and tunnel up to do it that way. Three incisions instead of one small incision. The only difference is they're not on the neck. They're on the breasts and the armpit. The transoral endoscopic, they make three incisions inside the lower lip to go down and take the thyroid out. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. Three times as long has to be a tougher recovery. These are horrendous operations. Why do they do them this way? Because they can. Not because it's better, just because they can. And it's a marketing tool. So I, you know, I, I applaud my colleagues that tried to, you know, try to push the envelope, try to find newer, better ways. Most of the time, though, if you really step back, think about it, and you look at it, you might not do it that way. When I studied, there was one general surgeon who did all this. It, uh, it was called non-invasive surgery, which is yes. already such a funny name. Yes. And they want to do also transvaginal gallbladders and yes. stuff like that. Yes. And it yeah. just, I mean, yeah. it didn't work. I mean, the, I didn't see so many cases, but one, they did transvaginal and convinced the woman because, you know, she wouldn't have any scar and it healed so well up down there. And then they had to open it up because uh, yeah. something yeah. went wrong. So... Yeah, they call that notes, N-O-T-E-S, natural orifice transendoscopic surgery. It's a cool word. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. and that's pretty much been abandoned from yeah. most of the people I know, just because the complications have been just horrendous from those kind of things. So. And in breast cancer surgery, any innovations so, or changes or not really the 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 major advances in my opinion in breast cancer have come in the oncology world and in determining looking at the natural biology of the tumor and the genetics of the patient and trying to figure out which patients are going to have metastases, which patients are going to benefit from maybe altering the order of the treatment, maybe doing uh, what we call neoadjuvant chemotherapy up front that has been shown to be a benefit in certain tumor biologies. And I guess probably the the biggest advance in breast cancer surgery would be the, the sentinel lymph node biopsy, but that's been out for 15 years now. That's pretty much the standard of care. And then there's uh, the various techniques that the plastic surgeons, that, that's uh, small increment changes in the way they do reconstruction for mastectomy patients. But I have to say for, for breast cancer surgery, other than sentinel lymph node biopsies, not much has changed since the 70s for the most part. We're doing fewer node dissections and more sentinel lymph nodes, which reduces the chances of arm swelling, lymphedema, but it doesn't eliminate it. Um, really, the advances in breast cancer are more coming from uh, the oncology uh, uh, portion of uh, also the diagnostics, you know. the imaging, and stuff. And the yes, very much so. The uh, the 3D mammograms, the MRIs, um, yes, they are a big. Though there's always the argument, are we picking up more breast cancers early? Is that clinically significant? Mm -hmm. Are those breast cancers that would have been clinically significant down the road? 
there's some debate about that. Um, same thing with, and that's a big debate about thyroid. You know, our ultrasounds now are so, um, so refined and so able to, um, thyroid cancer is, you know, the fastest growing cancer in the world. Truly, it's thought that that's because of our ability to, to find look at these thyroids. But clinically, how does, how does that overall, I mean, finding these small incidental thyroid carcinomas, is that really altering the natural history, the, the outcome of these patients? And that's what was interesting to me at this endocrine conference, endocrine surgery conference, when we're talking about thyroid cancer and a lot of discussion on staging and what to do with the staging and everything. And after two days of, of uh, uh, multiple, multiple hours of discussing that, I really feel like we have no clue at this point still as to you know which tumors are bad, need surgery, which tumors can we watch. There's not a real strong consensus on how to manage thyroid tumors. But I think in, in that regard, Germany is fairly if I may say this, is more conservative. Yeah. <laughs> and and I'll be honest with you, it was extremely confusing. It was extremely diverse. And they mentioned, we talked about at this conference, how the European view of incidental thyroid carcinomas is much more conservative than Americans tend to be, the American societies tend to be a little more aggressive on it. But you have a panel of four surgeons up there, and two would say you watch it, and two would say you do total <laughs> thyroid. You know, it's medicine. and that, and you know, for the most part, there um, there was a little bit of a consensus. Is if you feel like the patient needs radioactive iodine, and there's a lot of pushback now on that, a lot less recommendation for radioactive iodine. But if you really strongly feel that the patient needs that, then yes, total thyroidectomy is definitely indicated. But if it's a three millimeter or eight millimeter incidental papillary carcinoma, a lobe and an isthmus, no radioactive iodine is a perfectly, in, in a lot of surgeons' mind, perfectly standard care. Um, lymph node dissections, they're all over the board on that too. Like I said, the 2016, the American Society of Thyroid Surgeons, 16 pages for staging of thyroid carcinoma. 16 pages, not 16 lines, 16 to go through. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It's out of control. And, and basically nobody knows what the right answer is. That's where I think we're getting a little better with breast cancer. I think we are a little bit better able to predict how some of these, the biology of some of these breast cancers are. I think we're having a much, much tougher time with thyroid carcinoma as to how they're going to react and, and what the right answer is for that. Mm -hmm. So I, I just have um, one question still about the logistics, the every day sure. today of your work like you said you have a whole weekend on call uh-huh so how much time i mean so you have call from home you get called in from home yeah. so how much on in average do you then spend in the so you have to round so that's i guess you pick a time and you always yeah. go and yeah. drive from one to yeah. that, the next yeah. hospital yeah. 
my call starts on Friday, and I typically have a full day scheduled, half day office, half day surgery, answering phone calls, doing consults, rounding on my own patients on Friday, and then usually after five o'clock when the office is shut down and everything, then all the patient calls, nurse calls and everything come to you, which can be quite a bit, can be all night long. Emergency surgeries, I was on call a week, two weeks ago this Friday, um, and I was up all night doing an emergency surgery in the hospital. So One or various after each other? Uh, one, one surgery, one hospital. Okay, and that, but that took longer. That was, that was an all night affair. So, um, and then usually I, on the weekends, I like to start rounds at 6.30 in the morning and usually finish the rounds and doing consults and going to three hospitals or two hospitals or whatever it is. That's usually an all day. Uh, okay, affair. so it's, it's a long weekend then, really. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then, You know, any other, I did, I did another surgery. That was Friday night. Then Saturday, I did another surgery uh, in between rounds. Um, that was, they were both at research. And then night times, it's a lot of phone calls, usually. Uh, okay. Nurses, you know, various phone calls, patients and stuff. So the nurses call you directly too. They don't have another physician that's there in the hospital that they ask first. They well, they, if it's a, you know, if it's a, You know, patients in AFib, no, they won't call me. They'll call the, the cardiologist or the hospitalist. Or, but, you know, if it's a, well, Mr. Jones's tube fell out, what do we do? Or um, Mr. Jones has had abdominal surgery and he's throwing up, what do we do? You know, it's... it's oh, so they always call you right away. Okay. It's more, you know, surgery-specific phone calls. For the most part, but okay. not always. Because there in Germany, that'd be like one of the maybe certified surgeons, but yes. not one of the high up ones who's there at night. And mm -hmm. he would sort of cover everything at night and right. only call the attending, like, mm -hmm. you know, the one who actually does the surgeries yes. if he's unsure. But on the other hand, usually they stay in the hospital because yeah. they yeah. have to operate more. That, that was yeah. my other question. If you're like in the hospital... Yeah. I mean, of course, emergencies that come in at night or develop at night, yes. you do at night too. Yes. Um, what what is in Germany, I find very frustrating. Of course, in anesthesiology, we are involved in, in all kinds of emergencies, especially if it goes to the OR sure. uh, at night. But a lot of the things right now aren't emergencies. It's uh, it's also more like uh, economic reasons that you have the program during the day so full mm -hmm. because it's too expensive to have an extra OR staffed and right. uh, ready right. that all of these wound wax um, probably with, with some germ that has to be isolated, isolated they all come at night and you do yeah. all that stuff all night although of course you know already the day before that it is due and it just gets pushed into the night and all these poor patients who are in yeah. the hospital for weeks and weeks and yeah. have that change twice a week or right. whatever uh, rhythm, they they have to be done at night. And then you yeah. do these things at three in the morning, four in the morning after having worked all night. Yeah. Is yeah. that something that happens here too? Absolutely. Or? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Because that's um, only economical reasons. Exactly. There's no, there's no medical reason. Exactly. There's no, there's no possible reason why you would want to do it at night. Yeah. It's yeah. bad for yeah. the people who work. It's bad for the patients. Yeah. It's yeah. No, they have, you know, you have 10 ORs during the day at 3 o'clock. You know, five of those crews will are scheduled to go home. And, and then after 9 o'clock, there's only one anesthesiologist and a CRNA and... And so now you're down to one. So yeah, it's it's all a matter of economics. You can't staff because once again, lights are on, nurses are there. You know, you're paying these people, so you either pay them and don't get you know the work to pay for them, or you you, know, you keep them busy, which is. But I was kind of hoping it'd be better in the U.S. Sorry, <laughs> can't can't. Um, I hate to burst your bubble about that, but no, that's the same thing that we deal with here all the time. So, so what what do you enjoy the most about medicine? That's one, and the other one is the last one. What makes you a Kansas doctor? What what specifically do you think makes you a Kansas doctor? If if and if you don't you have mean an a answer, Missouri okay. doctor? Oh, sorry. Oh, God, oh, Missouri doctor, Missouri. Kansas City doctor. So yeah. I'll have to ask Kansas you that. There you go, Kansas City doctor. It's the rivalry, Kansas City. Yes, and yes, Kansas and Missouri. Um, all right. So I still enjoy performing surgery. That's always the best part of the job. People ask, well, why did you become a surgeon? Because I want to do surgery. If I was doing what my wife was doing, treating diabetes and hypertension, and that would, uh, I would not be happy doing that. I'm much, much more um, happy in the operating room with, uh, with my nurses that, we, that takes good care of me and we laugh and we have a good time and we take good care of the patients. And, I still enjoy surgery um, a lot. And you're taking care of a specific problem as well. It's, it's That's always the best part about surgery. You have a problem, and for the most part, you fix it. You do the surgery, and you fix it, and you move on, and that patient is taken care of. For the most part, there are exceptions to that rule. And that's the big advantage to surgery over um you know, internal medicine or family practice or a lot of these other anesthesia. Anesthesia, yeah. Well, anesthesia. We don't. We don't really. I mean, apart from on the ICU, but also then alone. But we don't really heal people. Yeah. We, we enable the surgeons to heal them. Yeah. Um, but I, I still enjoy interacting with people. Just, just um, um, you meet a lot of interesting people. You meet a lot of. Um, nice people you um, get involved in in a lot of people's lives and they want you involved in their life and that's a real satisfying part of the job the the downside is there's a lot of nasty people that you a lot of crazy people that you end up with and that's a very frustrating part of it and uh so you have to take the good with the bad, but uh, 30 years of practice, five years of residency, six years of medical, that adds up to a lot of years. And so it's, um, I, I feel the careers, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel and, and I'm okay with that. There are a lot of older, certain a generation of surgeons ahead of me that that was their whole life their whole existence, their whole being a doctor was just them. They, there was whole reason nothing, for being. a whole reason of being. I think in 
my generation of physicians, surgeons, that's very important to be a doctor, but it's not your whole persona. Not the end all and the all. Um, I think that there is, in my generation, there was an attempt at some balance that was still medicine and still a priority. It's still, um, you know, a big part of your life, but there, there was a little attempt at some balance there. The generation before me, a, a lot of those, there was no balance. And, mm. you know, there's a lot of divorces and children that were raised just by the, the single parent. And, and it was not good for the most part. I think my generation, there's a little bit. Now, I think this next generation, whole different ball of wax. The medicine is a very small portion of who there are and their whatever they're interested in is a is is a is more of a priority than than your career. Whether that's right or wrong, good or bad, I'll reserve that judgment to tell. everybody else. But there's a major shift in um and that's an interesting word to use because the current generation of physicians want shift work. Emergency department used to be people just went into it because maybe they didn't want to do, didn't have anything else. But it is a priority residency and position now because you take a job working 10 shifts a month, 20 shifts a month, and whatever it is, you go to work, you put in your hours, and you go home, and you leave it all behind. You know, or you're a radiologist where you sit in a dark space for 10 hours and then there's some guy in Australia reading the x-rays through the night while you sleep through the night and then you get up the next day. Um, or you're a pathologist and you have a stack of slides and you go through that in eight hours and you go home. Or you're a dermatologist and you take care of acne for 10 hours a day and you don't work on nights or the weekends. So that's, and that, those are much more desirable. General surgery is a dying breed. Nobody wants to do general surgery because the hours in general surgery are long, unpredictable, high risk as far as liability goes. Uh, very few people are wanting to do OBGYN nowadays too. People are getting out of the OB because it's long hours, unpredictable hours, high liability. So it's interesting, and I think that's putting more of a pressure on the healthcare system as it is because you have fewer people doing fewer hours. And in this country, we have what we call the baby boomers, which are aging and getting in that um, very high need um, healthcare. And that's where these physician extenders, nurse practitioners, CRNAs, nurse midwives, um, you know, we're getting all these physician extenders because there's a huge, in this country, shortage of physicians. And so the government, the uh, the healthcare system is trying to fill that gap um, and there's got to be a little concern about that. So maybe they have to make part-time more possible than two if they don't find people anymore in the end. Yeah. There's that. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. The problem is, going back to what I said, $400,000 investment. Right. 
you're working part time, you're still only getting paid part time, and trying to make that mm. find it. Right. Like I said, you can. It's a hobby then at that point. Mm-hmm. If you're not making any money, it's not a career, it's not a profession, it's a hobby. So what makes you a Kansas doctor? Okay, a Missouri doctor. Miss- oh, sorry, okay. So what makes you a Kansas Missouri. City doctor? Kansas City doctor, okay. <laughs> so born in Kansas City. I'm working at, the hosp- at, at, well, not the exact building, but the hospital where I was born at. Um, family around, friends around classmates from high school and grade school are around medical school here um, and you know trained at the hospital here in town I think I, I have a lot of the, um, the traits of a Midwesterner so I think that's what makes me a Kansas City doctor um, I love the town um, I, I love the people for the most part some people <laughs> don't and uh, so I, I think just the roots here is what uh, what makes me a Kansas City, Missouri doctor. So uh, I will probably always have some presence here in town, even after I retire and the kids move away or whatever. Where would you retire? Where would I retire? You're not going to move, are you? I'm going to be here, like I said, um, I will always have a presence so- here. Uh, but I, I can easily see, you know, spending a month or two months in a warmer location in January and February. Um, so, but I don't, I don't think that I would uh, move to Arizona or move to California. No, I don't think that. So, but I could definitely see a couple of months when the snow's flying around here, not, uh, not being here for uh, weeks for a at a time. So, yeah. Thank you, Dr. Franey. Thank you, Dr. Gunther, for the time and for the wonderful information and comments. Thank My you pleasure. so much. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Tom Franey, for a very informative and fun interview. Thank you to my husband for helping out. And thank you for listening. This is Dr. J, signing out.